you know, ultimately, the, the thing that we have, that we have to protect, that I think is becoming increasingly more important, is the engagement and loyalty of our of our user base. And if we violate that in any way, the user experience is terrible, the content's terrible, whatever, we don't serve their needs, then they're gonna go somewhere else. It's not like there's a lack of content options out there, even in our business category. So you gotta fight for it. And, and this is kind of part of that, that decision. Welcome to season four of Perpetual, where you'll get the hottest takes and insights on what's happening in the constantly shifting world of media and marketing. I'm Adam Ryan. Let's go. All right. Welcome, Scott, to the Perpetual Podcast. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Adam. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think when I was thinking about all the guests that we've had on this podcast and, and different media businesses, I, I like to joke that people people like to, to kind of just steal ideas from others and reiterate. And I don't know if there's been a more common pitch of media startups than Bloomberg for X uh, or the <laughs> next Bloomberg with this. And I think it's it speaks a lot to how such a, you know, a storied business uh, has continued to grow. And I uh, would love to just jump in a little bit of, of how you're handling this evolution of the industry. Last year, you, I think for such a large newsroom, such a large organization had a very forward thinking perspective by saying you're an audience first media company, you cut third party advertisers, you improved user experience. I thought that was a huge announcement that should have got even more press than it did. I'd love to just hear from your perspective, like what what led to that that outcome? In some ways, it's back to basics. We're in this to serve an audience. And when I took over this role, I guess 14 months ago, and having been here for six and a half years prior to that, we had been running so fast, launching new brands, new regions, new products, new platforms, that I wouldn't say we lost sight of who we're serving, but we probably weren't deploying the rigor that we need on user experience, understanding the audience, delivering on their evolving needs. And I just felt like we had doubled, this year we will have doubled in the last three or four years wow. revenue, which is an incredible growth rate on a compound annual growth rate. And I, I just felt like we need to get back to basics. You know, the website, our biggest platform, subscriptions and advertising, we had so much demand over the last few years for advertising that we had, I'd say, added maybe a couple too many units to the site. We had still allowed third parties to access our inventory. We hadn't had time to get around to tightening up and refactoring the code to speed up the site. It, it just became, we were running so fast, hustling so fast that I wanted to get back to basics. And that was really what was behind it. And so some of the, it manifests itself in a few ways. One, we are rethinking the digital front end and back end. You know, how do we make the site faster, more usable? What are the needs that have changed since I got here seven years ago for our audience? And let's ask them. Our load time is critical and it had gotten a little heavy on the site. How do we speed that up? Uh, I mentioned the third-party advertising. Our inventory is so valuable. This audience of modern leaders around the world is arguably the most valuable audience in the world. Why are we letting third parties come into our site with, with heavy ads and tracking technology and ad tags and kind of slow down the site, maybe worsen the experience on some level? And also, how do we, with our evolving and expanding set of content, how do we show our audience what we're actually doing 
you know, we've got podcasts and shows launching every week. And that house inventory, which I think people undervalue, is important. This is the, we don't have to go to Facebook or Twitter to find them or like they're on our site. We've got 50 million people on the site. Let's tell them that Joe Wiesenthal has a new video-based Odd Lots podcast or Hannah Fry has a new show called The Future on on our originals network. Like, So I thought that was a good place to get back to basics. Ultimately, having worked as an entrepreneur and at a platform being Yahoo early in my career, I had that kind of customer obsession that I think Silicon Valley should get credit for, Bezos and and jobs and, and Elon Musk, you know, and, and I feel like media companies sometimes lose sight of it. So that was really what underpinned it. I think it will, in the long term, deeply benefit our engagement, our relationship with modern leaders, and, and therefore allow us to continue to grow our business. The difficulty of that decision, it's one of those things that you're like, well, of course, of course, uh, th- of course, that makes so much sense, right? And you have the most valuable audience in the world. Why would you allow CPMs to be a 10th for programmatic? It makes, you know, and but there's a math equation in that of like, it's because it's a high margin, easy product, and that's why they exist. What was your expectation potentially on missed or lost revenue for that? And did you have a timeline or a window, a year, six months, five years, where you thought you actually could make that revenue up by having a better user experience? What was your timeline with that decision? So the first of all, the, the impact is not insignificant, given we have scale on the site. You know, when you have 50 to at the peak, over 100 million people on the site, you can start doing the math on page views and impressions. So it was million, there was a short-term impact of millions and millions of dollars. And that, I didn't take that lightly. And I know we're probably better situated with our growth rates and with our overall corporate entity to be able to make that decision. My math, our math would suggest that the payback should be actually very quick, not five to 10 years, but within a year or two. That if you value that inventory for getting new subscribers to a newsletter, get more people to watch a show, get more people to subscribe, and you you do some math on that, then actually losing, you know, millions of dollars comes back pretty fast. For us, the math, our our model suggested a pretty short-term recovery. The only difference is it's a little less tangible. And it's a li- you know, it's a little more on faith than like the certainty of a check from open exchange or from any of our partners that were on the site. Uh, and, and that's it. But, but uh, it, it'll pay back in spades this year. I think that's such an important message, though, because it's, it's easy. It, you, what you did was you took the hard route, but it's the better route. There's a lot of companies not at the scale of that. And maybe, maybe that wouldn't cause millions of dollars of loss, but that tens or hundreds of thousands can impact the bottom line. But your line, I think uh, the best practice is you're using that open house inventory that used to be lower CPMs. You're extending LTV of that audience or growing, expanding new products. Like it, you're, you're probably seeing much more diversified success. Exactly. And that's our bet. We think, you know, it plays out in the math and plays out in the user experience. So, uh, you know, ultimately, the, the thing that we have that we have to protect that I think is becoming increasingly more important is the engagement and loyalty of our of our user base. And if we violate that in any way, the user experience is terrible, the content's terrible, whatever, we don't serve their needs, then they're going to go somewhere else. It's not like there's a lack of content options out there, even in our business category. So 
you got to fight for it. And, and this is kind of part of that, that decision. Some of your, your competitors, when you start to look at that user experience, it not only, I think, is better for the user, it keeps that premium brand halo that you all have created. And, and that's something that, as, as you know, that's the moat of where the CPM drives come from. That's the price of the subscription. And when you have that premium reader experience, it kind of like it keeps that halo around that uh, around the brand as well. We also paired it with, you know, a deep reflection on are we monetizing newsletters well enough, which the answer was no. I would argue, and I think a lot of people would argue that both newsletters and podcasts are some of the best, most intimate, most engaged advertising copy with audiences. And, you know, the, the newsletter is really the, the homepage these days for, for most people. And we kind of used it as a CPM driver, I would say, in the past. That is to say, we put it into multi-platform campaigns to drive down the overall effective CPM. That is actually the wrong direction, you know, I would argue. And so we we did need to improve the ad placements and the creative and the style in which we allowed sponsor integration. Um, we needed to rethink how we were marketing this valuable audience that, by the way, opens the newsletters and that most of ours north of 50%. So like they're engaged, they opted in for this, right? And so not only do we, you know, make the decision to remove the access to our site to advertisers that didn't work with us, but we also said like, hey, we're going to improve newsletters, podcast inventory. We're going to focus on trying to monetize the things that we do have where we know it's effective for our brand marketers. The switch of newsletters going from value add to value, it was over about a five-year period where first it was publishers having to switch the formats and the styles. And, and then it was marketers finally being like, huh, I guess I have to pay for this inventory now, huh? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and once it shifted, which I think to your point, I think now it's it's basically there. And anybody with a Yahoo background uh, always understands the impact of a homepage and uh, and that analogy. And and that's uh, that's definitely I think I agree with you. For now, that's that's kind of where the consumers are are, are taking in the most content. Yep. Thinking about that decision of lost revenue. Even with a one-year time payback, which is very, uh, you know, very short overall, you do have the benefit of being a private company and not having, you know, public share. Though you do publish all your numbers uh, quarterly and annually, which I, I, I think everyone appreciates. So we can, we can all learn of, of how you guys are operating. You don't have that necessarily Wall Street pressure. Pat, you've been on kind of both sides of this now. Um, what is it, you know, managing a public company versus a private media business? Is it possible today, looking at BuzzFeed and et cetera, is it possible today to run a media company on public markets really successfully because incentives? Or is it just better to, to stay private as long as possible? I don't think there's a black and white answer to that. And certainly, if you choose to go public to access capital to have a liquidity event, you know, event for your investors. Like I appreciate that. And, you know, for Buzzfeed and others that have done that, there's no question that once you do that, you open up scrutiny of your business model. You have multiple shareholders, some of which may try and, you know, do a proxy battle to take control of the board. You've got to focus more on the short term to deliver your quarterly earnings to Wall Street and investors. And all of those things, and the paperwork and Sarbanes-Oxley, all, all that's contained within going public is a drag on innovation, frankly, it can be. 
you know, outside from the capital need. And, and, and that can make it hard uh, to take a long-term perspective. There's no like silver bullet. We all know this who've been in media. You can't just launch something and expect within a few months it's going to be wildly profitable. Like, but if you're trying to show Wall Street that you're conscious of your earnings and they once they get past that revenue growth is the only thing that matters, which ultimately they do, then being private has its advantages. You can take, usually you can take a longer term view on these investments. That's the big difference. I've been at the Atlantic and Time Inc. publicly and Condé Nast privately and, and now Bloomberg privately. I think it's a bit easier to operate in a disrupted competitive landscape if you don't have the the scrutiny on your business and then you can take that longer term investment perspective, period. I think it's playing out, you know, people have a uh, memory loss a little bit. And I think for a while, it was, uh, it was the sexy new move to do of like, oh, you want to go there? Now everyone's realizing like, hey, there's probably a reason why all the 800 pound gorillas are still private. It allows you to, to keep going. On the front of innovation, everyone's in, you know, the fastest internet product uh, ever existence was is, is ChatGBT3. AI is constantly talking about it. My perspective to, to before I, I jump into that is I think there's just going to be a higher value of investigative reporting and, and perspectives is what will go down with it. But, you know, for you, you not only have to battle like how does this potentially disrupt the model? How does this change consumer behavior? But you also have a massive newsroom uh, across globally. How have you had communicated, you know, with questions to that newsroom as that's popped up? First of all. We have been working with machine learning or AI for a long time. The newsroom, which I don't manage, by the way, it's sort of global across all of our platforms. And there are people that work on the media side. We call the media editorial that are in TV and radio. Those are the things I have business responsibility for. But um, so the newsroom is so big that it's it cuts across lots of different lines. But in 2016, we started deploying machine learning, natural language processing to read data sets and earnings releases and other filings to create automated content for the terminal subscribers. This is more on the professional side than on the consumer media side. We have a couple hundred people that are focused on this, engineers, scientists, et cetera. Uh, so we've been working with it for a long time. And you can see when thousands of stories are written a day for traders and bankers, by a machine and the accuracy is incredibly high uh, and speed is is most important like you can see the power of it yeah you know, everyone just sort of woke up <laughs> the other day to jet chat gpt and now it's a massive frenzy and people are freaking out in the industry it's been around for a while clearly there's been a transformative event with the un unleashing of chat gpt and now everyone following but we've been deploying it we see the power of using technology and as you said that allows our journalists not to write a rote story on Meta's earnings or up 7%, but actually to do the context and the analysis and, and connections between the companies. AI can't do some of that stuff. It may be someday it will. I don't think I'll be around by the time it, you know, we can do everything uh, like a human brain, a brain can do, right? So, so I think, great, deploy the technology in a smart way. And I think they're going to work through some policies on through the newsroom on how we use it, you know, whatever. We've also, on the media side, been using it in a couple different ways. One, and again, everyone's focused on answering questions, you know. But, for example, we we deployed in on our app 
like, I don't know, four or five years ago, uh, a feature. It's a small feature in the Bloomberg consumer app called uh, the Bulletin. The idea there was like people don't usually read the full story, but they kind of want the the tweet. They want the one summary sentence of what happened. So we deployed that years ago in that feature to rip through the story, extract the companies or quote, you know, the, the, the stock quotes or tickers and tell you without reading it, like what, what you need to know. And that actually works really well. We also deployed machine learning, like a lot of other publishers too, I think, to model our audiences, to tailor a dynamic paywall based on our view of your propensity to purchase a sub or not. Um, yeah, to, as I said, to, to, you know, amplify audience segments, we can, you know, financial advisors do this generally, and then we can kind of find them in more mass if we don't have data on them. So we've been deploying it. We think it's super powerful. I do think the more and more we can use it in the creation of content, you know, like video, like automated video clipping and things like that, which require a human or have required a human, but honestly, isn't using the full power of the human brain, you know, and, and get these people to focus on adding the differentiated piece of it. The, the, as I say, the analysis, the context, um, adding some images and creativity to things. I think, I think that's where we can continue to, to add value. So, you know, every new technology is both exciting and scary, uh, you know, and I think we're going to have to go through that and, um, figure out ways, uh, policies and procedures. And for me, as a, someone who's kind of grown up in the digital age, technology innovation is exciting. It's just got to figure out how to deploy it the right way and figure out where to add value, you know, to your, to, again, back to what does our audience need from us? We, you know, we can use technology to, to serve some part of their need or, you know, our journalists will, will, will serve this other part of their, their need to, to be successful. So, yeah, I think the, the back to basics is, I think is what it's enabling your video production. We, we just started using something. I, I think it saved about 10 X the time uh, of video clipping. Uh, and it's like those resources now can be more productive to make a better quality content. That was never what the core competency of the business. hundred percent. It could be a really efficient tool. Yeah. I think uh, in the world of, uh, of the last, you know, and, and you all stayed away from this uh, the entire time, which was uh, admirable. And I think it's, it's shown. But I think in the world of quick attention and, and clickbait, there's such a shift in quality and the business. And why, you know, hopefully that technology allows us actually to go more on the quality side, where I think the last kind of mass distribution and social allowed kind of it went to quantity more so than the quality side. So it'll, it'll be an interesting shift. The forced move towards publishers adding unique and differentiated value, quality value, whatever you are, sports, lifestyle, and away from this last um, era of the web where we were trying to search or social hack our way to audiences that we didn't know. <laughs> That's sort of coming to an end. Chat GPT or, or AI could also obviously impact search traffic, which still is the, the currency of the digital realm in many ways. You know, we probably get 30, 40 million clicks from Google, you know, a month, right? So if they don't need an answer from us on our site, that would damage that flow. So we've got to figure out how to get people to come to us without that intermediary. And I think that's scary for everybody, especially if you've built a model on, you know, monetizing all of those clicks with every RPM driver you can put on a site. But it also forces you, a publisher to say, 
okay, why would they come to what do I what can I provide for them where they're gonna they're gonna have to come to Bloomberg.com? And I think that's a good trend for the publishing industry for sure. No one needs another top 10 credit cards list, do they? Please. Uh, no, uh, no more list actually in general would be great. Uh, but <laughs> it'll be, you know, on the evergreen content side of those businesses, WebMD and, and others, I think you're going to see a lot of forced innovation. Those companies are brilliant. I mean, you don't get to that size. I mean, you're, they're brilliant operators, but their model's very at risk uh, of that. And I think you'll see a lot of innovation come through. I think newsletters actually were a little bit of an entry point, though Though they were all, everyone's had them forever. They were innovated in the formats and, and that was an answer to that. And we'll see how, how that kind of evolves over time. You've been doing AI since 2016, which I think is like really integrating the business, which I think like speaks to how much uh, narrative control versus actual execution aren't aligned at times. But the reality was that was probably a trend that you all caught on to in 2015, you know, 14, 15 and started realizing the power of that. If we're looking five-ish years ahead from today, what trend do you think that if you're a media operator, big to small business, what do you kind of think we should start be prepping for or thinking about that could that could shift the industry? Uh, we've probably the last couple of years, not everybody, but a lot of people have spent probably way too much time obsessing of uh, around all this Web3 stuff, which is obviously the technology is interesting. You, you blockchain, NFTs, uh, digital currency, like it's all not going away. It's all part of the digitization of the world, which is inevitable, right? Everything kind of goes digital except maybe tangible buildings and trees and humans, but like media and business goes digital. But like a publishing model that's successful around that, maybe covering it's a different thing, but like trying to integrate that into, hey, we serve content on multi-platforms to an audience that needs, you know, there was a lot of wasted silliness going on there, which we saw, actually, I saw before at Condé Nast when Second Life launched, which was sort of Web3 before Web3, you know, Metaverse, the first, yeah. And, and like the effort of building bureaus in the Metaverse, nobody in the Metaverse wants to read business content, you know? <laughs> so I think that was like the little crazy the last couple of years. Obviously, that's a bit imploded. <laughs> so, you know, longer term, I think there are some really interesting things that are, that are going on. For, first thing I would say, I've been through a couple creator economies. The first one was sort of the blogging experiment where a lot of journalists went out on their own, but but the tools just weren't there. Uh, we didn't have the subscription tools that were easy to deploy, and they certainly were not capable of selling mass advertising, you know, so they, maybe they throw a pro, like an ad network on their site. But again, low CPMs without 100 million pages, what difference did it make? Now with Substack, and then on the video side, of course, YouTube and, and Instagram, uh, even OnlyFans, like yeah. creators can build an audience, not, you know, obviously it's, it's sort of the 1% crowd that makes the real money. But if you have something to offer and you get it out there, you can make money and you don't need to be part of a company necessarily. That's not going away. And as a publisher, you have to figure out what's our role with talent going forward. As you might see from us, we are bringing Bloomberg News and media. We're bringing our talent a little bit more upfront than we used to. Uh, odd lots of Joe and Tracy and um, doing shows with Cal Penn and Hannah Fry. And uh, we have a new forthcoming Emily Chang show, who's one of, one of our great journalists. Um, how do we provide a platform for them? How do we also represent IP with 
you know, the West Coast, uh, which we've built a function to do that. The Shrink Next Door, which was a great success for the author and for the company and for our, you know, buzz and brand. Like those are the kind of things that we have to think about. But that that is not like a fat. That's not going to, they're all going to say, oh, I'm tired of doing this. I'm going to come back and work in a big corporation. Maybe some of these guys will come together and, and new corporations will be, you know, so they don't have to deal with HR issues and infrastructure. But I think we've we've entered a new era there for sure where it's possible to do that. So I think that that's going to be around. That, that's powerful and good for the consumers too. You get some really great people doing great stuff. I think... Well, I might have a negative view of the affiliate business per se, just because it gets squeezed out, washed out, and you're at the, the sort of well, mercy of a platform. We share a similar view of that. That's funny. I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's again, like it was, a, it was a good innovation, right? I think, though, that the commerce in its broadest sense paired up with content is not a fad. It's a, it's a long-term trend, especially if you're in certain categories, if you're in lifestyle absolutely should be involved in selling trips and goods and things that you're talking about. Obviously, there's some editorial things you have to work out. But if you're in the sports content business, should you not be involved in this massive flow of, of gambling and esports? Of course, I think you absolutely should be. Like, you're part of you the conversation. You, well, and you probably have to be to make money, right? So I think that is like a powerful trend of content and commerce coming closer together that is not a fad. Even if the affiliate thing gets kind of squeezed out, it's really about taking more control of that supply chain. You know, doing a big deal with with like FanDuel or DraftKings yourself versus like putting an affiliate link there, which everybody can do. You know, that, that's that, so it's it's sort of more direct. It's more of a consolidated supply chain there where you can have better economics too. So I see that like absolutely there. Uh, and a long-term trend for this industry. And, and I know this is a bit selfish, but I think this is not going away. There was a big push for for publishers to to, to inter- disintermediate agencies. That That's not happening. Agencies have evolved and do, do lots of different things for their clients. However, brand studios, we have a big one ourselves, in many circumstances can provide incredible insight, data on our audience. We know them better than anybody else who doesn't work here and the business landscape and our distribution strategy and our platforms. And now with the capabilities to create every, everything from infographics to smart article series to documentaries, that is a way that we in particular have been pivoting for the last three or four years to deepen that long-term relationship with our brands, including working with agencies on pieces of it, on the buying and other things. That to me is like part of publishing now. Uh, especially if you're a, you know, and I think, I think that's good and it's smart because I think the advertising, ultimately you want the advertising to be effective. Like, and if, if you can work with something that gets the audience and create great content and you get them, you know, whatever your KPI is, performance, branding, you nail that metric for your client, then everyone's a winner. And so I think that's a big trend. That's, it's definitely not going away. We're going to, we, we invested in that for ourselves. We're going to continue to invest in building content for our, for our clients and being able to distribute it as well. So the, the Web3 piece, to go to that, I couldn't agree more that I think there's something there of a globalization of digital, like a digital ownership asset, ease of purchasing, et cetera, a wallet of the internet of sorts that like doesn't mm-hmm. exist yet. Sure, 
the models built around it are just so off and wrong and not sustainable as as as, as they came to fruition there. I do think what kind of going to the contact commerce piece, though, is I actually think that accelerated that a lot. It brought it more into conversation of like, hey, this is naturally, typically the Web3 pitch was like there's a content and natural commerce interaction in one. And I think it made people starting to feel more comfortable that it pushed them like, hey, I'm not going to do this crazy token thing. We can just do that on our stack today in like a better way and starting integrated. And I think it's, I mean, you know, I think the commerce, uh, I, I wrote this, I think, in a newsletter not too long ago, but the commerce content play, I think, actually is a reaction just to the to the media business margins. You know, it just is like, hey, this is a tough, this, we had to adapt and learn of like, you know, our CPMs are okay, but if we could sell this product directly and it makes a lot of sense, we can improve that. It's also helpful to the audience if you do it in an appropriate, in the right way. I don't trust 95% of the results of the affiliate stuff. You know, I think they're, they haven't actually reviewed any of the products. Guess who I do trust? The New York Times Wirecutter. Because I, I, I don't, I know, I, I know those guys pretty well, but I also know that there's no way the New York Times company or bureau would allow them to put up rankings and ratings of products without doing the work. That would have, be a total lack of ethics and morals and integrity. They wouldn't allow it. And so when I find, if I'm looking for a new refrigerator, I'm obviously going to go to a trusted brand like the New York Times, you know, and I'm going to look at what they, what they think. And it's at least one variable. And that just makes sense. And it makes it easier for me to figure out how to make that purchase. And if I can help them out, I'm fine with that too on the affiliate stuff. But so I, I think, I think it's just like, it's also a audience first maneuver too, to, to kind of collapse the effort to get that new refrigerator. Well, and I think the the piece about affiliate and I mean, the times uh, there's very few that have the infrastructure of trust built where it just incentivizes the wrong things. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, it, and, that, and ultimately, I think and long, long time horizons, normally incentives show where things are going. But um, <laughs> I do want to take a note on the on the creator front. Uh, Workweek obviously is in, in that space and. We saw that kind of happening, which is why we put a lot of our our talent at the forefront. When you're thinking about, you know, if I, I went to, you know, University of Missouri, a lot of journalist friends, they all dream to work at the Times or Bloomberg and, you know, all of the big names. And I think that brand, that brand appeal still exists in a very big way of pride, of like sense of that and the investment that you and those few others have made in those journalists through the years is is substantially better than most. But, you know, I think the graduation problem is undeniably there. And to your point, the tools now are there for people to say, hey, I might only make 60% of my salary, but I also get to take my own time and do these other things. Like maybe it's worth it. When you kind of like think about the talent that you have, and I think putting their names at the forefront, you address that as a big one. What also are you thinking about? to make sure that, you know, at the end of a three-year contract, someone blows up, it does it always have to be more money? Is it more fame? Or is there like a, a you know, something else that all of us are missing? Because I think you've retained talent. You've had not the unbundling uh, that others have had. So I'm, I'm curious what the, what the sauce has been. It's a few things, probably. Uh, there is stability. Being at a, a company like Bloomberg, we are overall very successful and profitable, the, the benefits in H, you know, in HR, um, 
are probably unrivaled uh, in, in certainly in, in media, but but maybe in any company. Mike clearly values the employees, the office space, the and the benefits that come along with working here. Uh, I think we pay well, so there's some stability in that uh, in compensation. Ultimately, you hope you find something you love to do, but we want to make money too and build our our nest eggs and raise our families, and that's important. So I think we've been, you know, we haven't had to cut salaries or lay people off. So Bloomberg's, I mean, I don't know if there's been layoffs at this company, maybe well before I got here, you know. So again, that means a lot to people. I also think we have identified that we need to do more for town. I mentioned the IP representation, uh, house ads, marketing, um, allowing them to do other events to get their brand out there, allowing them and then helping support so the social media efforts too. You know, it's a it's a it's a two sided thing. Uh, you know, it's a two two edged sword. You can build up someone's brand and then they are big enough to go on their own. But but we've taken the risk that we offer a lot to them and for them that that that's okay. You know, they're going to do that. We're not going to prohibit them. We'll help them when we can, and and hopefully they they stick around. We also have we were very thoughtful about okay, what if they do decide to go somewhere else? We lost a banker from TV to another network recently, and. You know, we focus on developing the next um, level of talent. You know, so you've got you've got to assume that you can't have a hundred percent retention uh, of anybody, right? We probably average ten to twenty percent in any given year. Or people are going to take a new job, retire, whatever. So we do that pretty well. Uh, we also, I would say, we invest in career development for our staff, uh, both you know from talent all the way you know to people behind the scenes. You know, continuing education leadership training, uh, diversity and inclusion training. There's a lot of stuff that we do that I think people value. We try and also be thoughtful about career progressions. You know, how do they take on more, expand their their reach on TV? Now they want to do events and write an, an article. We try to be very um, supportive of those extensions and growth. So I, I think that's how we try and approach it for the most part. Our belief is uh, culture and value are are two things you have to nail, uh, value mostly being compensation, culture being, you know, obviously who you work with, what you're, what you're doing, the infrastructure there. But the last one that I think most publishers have kind of forgotten that you just touched on, which is the differentiator, is growth. Uh, and I think there's a lot of talented journalists that I make good money, I like who I work with, but like I want to do more. I want to do more things. And if they don't get those opportunities, that's really what's driving the that's driving them away. And, and I think that's a huge that investment is is a retention mechanism. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think also most journalists know that it's not the easiest path to go out on your own. Um, that yeah, there really is like if there's there's a top tier of creators that accrue most of the value and the benefit. And then there's a bunch that kind of slug it along and probably don't get back to what they were making before. They may have more flexibility in life. They also probably miss some of the camaraderie of staff and team. We've got 23,000 people, I think, in this company. We've got these beautiful offices. And like coming in the office is not a chore. It's like a nice place to collaborate and connect with people. And I think actually that if the pandemic, which taught us anything. I think that we, we crave some human interaction and being isolated is, is not ideal as human beings. So, um, so yeah, I think that's part of it too. Do you want to be, you know, in your apartment or do you want to be around really interesting, smart people in the office that are going to challenge you and they'll provide you opportunities and, and also be a friend. 
Holly. We've seen massive success with, with Gen Z talent of wanting to come in an office. It's actually a huge differentiator if you have one and why we, we, we invest in one. Well, I know uh, I would love to get to, to two more two more things yeah, real quick. Away. One, your events business boomed last year, according to your annual report, 46% year-over-year growth, which is pretty phenomenal. We just talked about it South by Southwest week. It's going to be probably the biggest one in, in years. Uh, and, you know, from your perspective of, of events, it goes hand in hand with having a branded content studio. Also, you can do more with that as a team and, and turn that and kind of replicate that content over and over again. But what was the cause for the boom last year? Are you seeing that pattern continue? How do you kind of think about events as a strategy of the business? We, we really see the events business as an extension of our editorial platforms, for sure. This is not uh, again, audience, you know, kind of first audience centric. Can we provide a convening and content based uh, experience that people want to go to? And uh, again, I think we caught a nice trend. Anybody who's in the event business post the first couple of years or year and a half of the pandemic of frankly wanting to get back out, travel and connect with people. So that certainly helped us grow. That also means that brands would like to to be where uh, audience, especially global decision makers, are. They want to integrate and be part of that conversation too. And so, yeah, for us, it was great demand on the on the audience side. But then also our sponsors said, "Look, people are going back to live events. We want to provide a different type of like branding opportunity. We want to be more integrated and connect on a more on a one to one basis than mass marketing." And so we were able to to grow. Uh, the business overall. We also, the media business is about moving forward and trying new things, launching new things. If you just stick to your knitting and do the same thing day in, day out, you really have a hard time growing. Like <laughs> my experience has been, uh, you know, for the last 20 years that the growth comes from launching new things. Like think, go back to when I got here and, and even the first three or four years at Bloomberg uh, and, and Justin Smith, my who was run, running Semaphore, we were, you know, partners on the, the thing that broke us out of this like slow growth was launching Quick Take, uh, you know, on Twitter, putting up a paywall, and building a consumer subscription business, launching our seminal marquee event, the New Economy Forum, and uh, and really focusing on bringing in strategic thinkers on our ad business that could build these big campaigns for the likes of you know, Hyundai, Samsung, and all these great companies that ultimately had content at the core. Those four things really drove this doubling of our size. And we also launched new brands like green, equality, crypto. You have to just do that, you know, and, and that's, that's, and so in events, we launched a bunch of new events this year. We're going to launch a new one in LA with Lucas Shaw, great screen time. We've yep. continued to spin out satellites of our marquee event, the new economy form. We've got, we call them gateway new economy. One was our first one was in Panama. We have one in Dublin and in Morocco, wow. that's how we've grown it, you know, and, and and I shouldn't discount also investing in talent. You have to have the right kind of entrepreneurial, ambitious people. You know, our cultural pillars, I've sort of simplified in the last 14 months down to generosity and ambition. It's more happy warriors, you know, so it's like I'm a good person. I'm a good colleague, but I also really um, are I'm itching to be successful and, and build new things and grow this business. And I think, yeah, you know, we've we've done that. You know, and in events, we brought in a new person. 
Jessica Weber from the New York Times to bring what were two separate events business together. We just announced this internally and create some efficiencies in operating. But but the idea there is to take that next leap in scale because we're working together, not internally competitive anymore uh, between big events. So, but that's how we did it. It's just like launch new events, continue to make sure they're premium events, that they're not throwaway content so people want to come. Uh, and then brands want to be there because the audience is great. You know, it's it's all sort of, uh, you know, one. It all plays in that the first off, happy happy warrior is a is something I'm going to have to steal. <laughs> uh, that that might be the best cultural uh, explanation of of what every uh, company needs of of their team. But the happy um, what you're saying, I think, matches also to the trend that I think has happened in the last decade because, and you know, you've worked at specifically in digital for 16, 17 years at this point, but. It's a what have you done for me lately game with your audience. And your advertisers too, by the way. And your advertisers. It's both. And and uh, it doesn't matter last year if you won Pulitzers and had the biggest audience. It's like, what did you do for me this year? You know, and I, I think, and that's that speed test of your point of like, you have to be constantly innovating and trying new things or, or you're just not going to be able to keep up. The problem, if, if you, you want to call it that with our industry, is the barriers to entry generally are low. Someone could spin up an incredible business blog tomorrow and there's no stopping them and they could use these tools like Substack to do it. So as a user and as a marketer, you're constantly being introduced to something new. And so, yeah, fragmented mindshare, fragmented audiences and advertisers, we, always, we know they love the sort of unique, never been done before opportunities, uh, which I understand. Uh, they want to innovate too. And so you got to keep up. Yeah, that's it's it's actually like the people always ask what the formula for success in media is. And the reality is like hire a great team and keep innovating. Like that's it. Yeah. You know? That's Hold, it. That's build a it. good culture, a good team, and then keep building stuff. It's not that hard. That uh, might might define the podcast right there for everyone is hire a great team and just keep innovating. And I and I think then the question is what constraints prevent you from doing that? And I that you know, that's yep. there's a lot of those. And um but I uh last question I loved it to get to is Starting to look at something that we've discussed a lot internally, Brian Morrissey, who writes a great newsletter, sent me an email, asked me about this yesterday, about essentially a house of brands versus a portfolio strategy of which one is kind of going. And I think your background, you, you know, you're executive director of accounting NAS for digital and then Bloomberg, where in, from an outside perspective, Bloomberg has the one Halo brand, then a portfolio of brands underneath it based on category segments, et cetera. And Conde obviously had many, you know, it was a kind of a house of brands situation. How would you, operating in both of those, what kind of are some key takeaways that you think are like really defining pros and cons of each one? We're interesting. We're kind of a hybrid. You are. Yeah. In the sense that we, yeah, like Bloomberg's the dominant, the the primary brand, right? And we use that in everything from professional services all the way through to our consumer brand. So, you know, you have Bloomberg Green. It's not just like green, it's Bloomberg Green or Bloomberg Tech or Bloomberg Politics. But we we very much do value the power both to clarify to your audience what you're doing, like green, crypto, equality, and for content adjacency and alignment from your brand partners, marketers, many of them do buy. There's audience buying, of course, and I think, but we're moving a little bit more back to conceptual as third-party cookies go away. You know, if, 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 if sustainability is a huge platform for you 
brand X, you're going to be excited for the products that we're building in our green category. And it's very clear and simple. This is a strategy that I've done. Even at Portfolio, we were building out, you know, content verticals uh, around personnel. We were pretty early on this, having Felix Salmon, Matt Cooper, you know, Felix on finance, Matt Cooper on politics, Kevin Maney on tech. Like, we were building that out. And that was both so the audience like could align with, hey, I like to read finance. I don't care about politics. But also the brands could come in and come along for that ride. So I, I like that strategy. That I guess the pro is we're running on one platform. We don't have all these separate businesses, which, you know, I think in the old days, it kind of asked the, the, the family loved the competition, uh, publisher against publisher, New Yorker versus Wire, like, you know, one plus one equals more than two. I think that's fine. And that's one way to scale. Uh, obviously, Jim Bankoff would be the sort of new representation or Neil Vogel with uh, Vox and, and Dot Dash. If you're not on the same platforms, if you're not in concert, if you're not collaborating well, there there are some cons on the internal dynamics of that, for sure. There's overlap in content. You know, those, those are the things you got to work on. We're a lot more clear because everything is kind of rolling up to Bloomberg.com. And, you know, it's not like one channel is operating independently. And uh, we also have an integrated sales team versus multiple separate sales teams that are calling on the same client. So it's a little more streamlined. But I promise you that, that we value the brand strategy for all kinds of reasons. There's no perfect answer and everyone's a little bit different. I will say one takeaway that I've had from an organizational perspective, uh, and we've done this at the Atlantic when we launched Quartz um, and the Atlantic Wire, and we've done this uh, here uh, with Quick Take and with the New Economy Forum, is if you really want to scale a brand or a new launch, you do need to create some isolation for that team. So they're not caught up in the day-to-day. They don't get caught up in the same budget conversations, bureaucracy. You give them that independence to incubate and build. And what I've found, especially at a company the size of Bloomberg, or, you know, is that ultimately bringing it back in on some level so it's connected, so it's not terribly competitive forever uh, is important too. So it's brand and organizational strategy too. And I, th- I think if you want to incubate and be a, an entrepreneur, you've, you've got to think about that too. Uh, and that can be lost if you're just a, a branded house and you want to scale something. You know, we've got some dedicated, we've got a GM of green who's focused on building that brand to higher levels over the next few years. It's not just a, a channel. It's organization and clarity of the brand that matters. And in my experience, I like this hybrid approach, which is lean on brands that all connect back to a master brand or a primary brand versus completely isolated, sometimes sclerotic and unconnected brands where there's not any synergy at all, you know? Yeah. A little bit of the Gawker situation that just happened uh, is, yeah. is, is like, you know, is there's just not as connected. It's really hard to operate when you just don't have the seamlessness of, of the team. Talent can be hard too. If you've got 30 or 40 brands and you want each one to scale, like, are you really going to go out and be able to find 30 or 40 editors, GMs, engineers? You know, like some of it could be centralized, like maybe the tech stack is. But but like, yeah, you need dedicated personnel to build these things if they're really isolated. It's not that easy having, you know, hired a lot of people to find that many and retain that many superstars versus, you know, one that kind of oversees like your digital platform. I think the, the the audience will pick up on this, but it's very just clear that you spend so much time on how to 
innovate through your execution of, of Bloomberg. And it, it's what keeps it keeps the brand being the most premium business brand, I think, in the world. And the audience keep coming back. And um, I'm uh, incredibly grateful for the time that you gave us today as a as a final final question. Would love to just hear from you. Like, what is the future of Bloomberg? What can what can we learn from <laughs> you of, of what everyone is? Uh, what, what can we count on for the future? Uh, there's a few things that you'll see from us, I think, over the next few years. One is a continued focus on video. We are fortunate that we have two, what I call full stack networks, uh, meaning from social all the way to streaming networks, Bloomberg TV, the original one, and then um, Bloomberg Originals now renamed after it was Quick Take originally. But that is where a lot of the engagement's been going. It's not just TikTok, it's YouTube. It's a, it's a lot. People are getting information, including personal finance and news from video. It's easy, you know, uh, than read, it's easier than reading. I don't think this is necessarily a great thing, but like this is what's happening. And of course, as more audience moves there, there's there's more ad dollars there. So we, we were doubling down on that. We've invested in these new shows. We're rethinking Bloomberg TV's lineup and improving the shows that we've got there. We want to make surveillance, for example, like The Morning Show. So there's a lot going on there. You'll see more of that from us. You'll see um, a continued global expansion. The U.S. market's mature. It's competitive. It's tough. It's our biggest market. 60% of our business roughly is in the U.S., but that means 40% is not. And that's where last year we saw more growth than the U.S. So I just got back from Tokyo and Hong Kong. And it's complicated to deal with all the different cultures and languages, but you know, if you really want to expand... I think that's what you need to do. And we are uniquely set up because we've got offices there, bureaus there. It's easier for us to move into Hong Kong than a uh, small business, you know, but based in Austin, Texas. But uh, but I think that's, you're going to see more of that. You also see us use technology to help on multi-language support. I think that's the next wave for us too. And not everyone speaks or wants to read in English or listen in English or watch in English. So how do we, we do that? We've got some experiments going on there. And then I think you'll see a new suite of digital products from us. I, part of this audience, first thing is rethinking our platforms, not just for speed and ad load, but also for features and personalization and other utilities that we can provide for our audience. So we're gonna we're doing a lot of work this year. And I think you'll, later this year, next year, you'll see a lot of those uh, platforms transform. That audience first of getting to the language, giving them the tools they want, uh, and and giving them a better user experience, which enables it all. There's a there's a through line through all of that. There's a so, through line. Uh, yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, again all the time and uh, and and thanks for coming on and and let's do it again soon. Appreciate the time, Adam, and uh, congrats on all the great stuff you guys are doing at Work Week, and uh, I, I hope to be back on again soon. Thanks for listening. If you want deep insight and hot takes on the world of media, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed this episode, share with a friend. I'll see you next time.